Welcome back to all of you that have stayed. I'm, I'm Kim Elliott. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for, for Global Development. Um, and I'm here because I'm interested in um, how investment agreements and investor state particularly affect developing countries. And I think, and so in this panel, um, we're sort of shifting from rule of law to economic consequences of investor state dispute settlement. Um, and I found it really interesting that both Todd and Ted said, don't think of these things as being about promoting investment. Um, that it's about rule of law, and if you get improved rule of law, well then you'll get more in investment. And that was kind of the first thing I had in my, my notes, is that this rule of law issues and the economic consequences are very difficult um, to disentangle. And from a development perspective, I think this is a, the, the core question. Um, that we addressed towards the end of the last panel is whether these things actually do promote rule of law and better institutions um, uh, and, and therefore economic growth in developing countries is a particular interest and I think a particularly important type of, of economic consequence. I didn't frankly hear um, very much in terms of the, the TTIP and sort of North-North agreements. I didn't hear very much about the economic consequences of those kinds of agreements. So maybe we'll hear some of that, I hope, um, on this panel. Um, and I think that for, maybe it is because I'm coming from the trade side, like I think a lot of others that, that we've heard from, um, that we do sort of start with the premise that this is about um, increasing investment um, in areas where institutions are weak and therefore might deter it because of the increased risk. I mean, this is a question that actually has been extensively studied by international lawyers and others. And I just looked at a couple of, of survey papers to get an idea of, of the literature. And I think the sort of overall, the, the um, findings are that these things are positive in that sense of promoting investment um, overall. There's an UNCTAD study of 10 studies where six of them found a positive correlation um, between having a bit and increased investment afterwards. Um, three that found little or no correlation. And the interesting thing about the difference between those two sets is that the ones that didn't find correlation tended to control for, um, they had some variable controlling for the quality of institutions in the, in the country signing the bit. And so it's, they, they sort of concluded that these things are, are complementary um, and that that's why you tend not to find a positive impact. Um, the 10th one was a study by Susan Rose Ackerman and Jennifer Tobin who um, concluded that there were positive benefits, but that they were decreasing over time. The marginal benefit of an additional bit was less once you've already signed um, a lot of bits. And so that for countries that are coming later in the stream might have a different calculation in terms of the costs and benefits of signing on to a bit. Um, and then there's a really interesting, I think it's not out yet. I found it online, but it was in process, incomplete paper, but very interesting trying to take 33 studies and pull from that more than 250 coefficients and to try and de develop an elasticity of the response of investment um, to bits. And again, you know, that initial look is that they, they are generally positive, but relatively small. Um, so that's... So that, so that sort of seems to be the, the takeaway that I got anyway from the literature on that particular issue. Um, but again, as I said, from a development perspective, I think that the really core issue is the one going back to rule of law and what are the impacts of these things on local institutions and improving governance in countries. Um, and then a second set of issues in terms of economic consequences are, are the direct costs 
of lit litigation and the potential for regulatory chill. In the tobacco case, the Philip Morris case in Australia was mentioned this morning. There are a number of other cases against other countries under both BITS and under the WTO intellectual property rules. Um, and so I know that the, the folks on my, our global health team at the Center for Global Development are very concerned about the potential, particularly in the, in the area of tobacco, the potential for these rules to undermine not just the, abil the ability of governments to regulate, but potentially the will to regulate if they're afraid of being sued. Because they're, even if they end up winning, I think, uh, I think it was Todd this morning that said he thought that probably Philip Morris or, um, would lose. It wasn't clear if he was talking about the investment rules or the IP cases, um, but they'll probably in the end lose. But they're still costly to have to litigate these cases. And so that has to be taken into account as well. And just to, to throw out. You know, uh, the, the numbers were mentioned this morning. There actually is, uh, just this past month in April, a new report from UNCTAD on trends in the disputes part of this. And it's up to, it's, it's 568 cases that they were able to find. And someone mentioned that they're, they're not all um, transparently avail available. But 568 cases, 80%, um, that's the, the whole alt period going back as far as they could go back and find these things. But 80% of those have occurred since 2002. So that's the increase in litigation that a lot of people were mentioning as being concerned about. Um, not surprisingly, claimants in the US and EU account for 75% of the claims. What's interesting uh, is that more and more of these um, are intra-European and between rich countries, not between rich countries and developing countries. So again, sort of what are they about, I think, is, is a key question here. Um, and then someone mentioned that, that of the, there have been 274 cases concluded. Um, the states won, and there's this issue, but what does it mean by win or lose? But one in 43% investors and 31%, and the remainder were settled with the terms um, generally not available in the public sphere. Um, what we don't know from that, though, again, going back to my concern about impact on developing countries, is within the, the, the cases that the states won, were they proportionate between developing and developed countries? Um, perhaps that's in the database. I don't know. But that would be potentially a concern. Um, and then, again, going back to there's this, the, the rising number of north-north of disputes, I am curious of you know, sort of what is the role of investor-state dispute settlement in that context. And we've heard a lot about it in the context of TTIP. So you know, in particular, what are the economic consequences of doing an investor-state in the TTIP? And I, I hope we'll get answers to some of those questions. And it's a great panel, so I think we will. Um, we're basically going to um, go, we're going to start over here with Chris on, on the left and go through. And I, I'll do as Ted did and introduce them uh, one by one very briefly, because you should have their bios. Um, Chris is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he directs their initiative on North American competitiveness and concentrates on regional eco economic integration and policy coordination. He's also a, a, a lecturer just down the street at SICE, and he's going to lead us off talking about um, litigating the way to liberty. So it sort of sounds like maybe Chris should have been on the previous panel, but uh, we're very interested to hear what he has to say on this. Thank you very much, and I, I want to hearken to the previous panel where uh, uh, Todd was talking about how titles really reflect academia. I'd say on the think tank side, they reflect your best guess on what you're going to talk about, and then you listen to the previous panel and you change your mind. So <laughs> don't take it very seriously. Um, I want to talk a little bit about 
investor state dispute resolution in the context of our North American arrangements and why, why they've worked reasonably well um, for us. And I'll, I'll try to support that claim and why I think we have taken that idea that worked in this context and tried to take it to other contexts. It, it, we had some flashbacking this, this during the previous panel, looking back some years. If you go back to the period around World War II, uh, North America was a very different place, and it was a different place for two reasons. One was that our supply chain dynamics were very different. In those days, manufacturers and other, other companies thought about producing locally, and the primary model for that was to have a local factory ship a certain number of component parts into your factory locally, assemble them there, and then from that base sell within the local market. To take the auto industry as an example, in the very beginning of the 20th century, the US auto industry had two strategies, very different ones for Canada and for Mexico. In the case of Mexico, they shipped parts like some uh, nightmare IKEA bookshelf that you can never quite fit, figure out how to put together, with, without Allen wrenches, of course, uh, with all the parts numbered, and then factories around Mexico City would assemble the vehicle as a complete kit. They, they would sort of build it from parts that were imported. And over time, the companies sought to save on shipping costs. The companies would gradually buy more and more from the Mexican market when the Mexican manufacturing base was capable of meeting the requirements of standardization, precision, and other things the auto companies required. Canada was different. Canada was in the British Empire, which was the US largest global commercial rival. And so there, American firms sought partners who would build on contract. Uh, they were licensees. They would do most of the manufacturing in Canada and then ship around the British Empire in order, at least in the minds of the American manufacturers, to prevent the British from ever having a mass market automaker. And although the British did get automakers, they never got the big mass market ones. Um, Jaguar, Aston Martin, Bentley, Rolls-Royce, companies that produce in niches but don't produce in the volume that the American companies produced in. Because of that dynamic, particularly in the manufacturing sector, what we saw from Canada and Mexico was, was similar, actually, in both cases, which was a, a trade policy designed to capture as much of that activity locally as possible to increase domestic content gradually, as, but also sometimes by fiat, in order to create more jobs and anchor more economic activity inside Canada or Mexico. And the U.S. tried uh, gradually in the post-war period to reduce tariffs and other tools that were forcing production into Canada and Mexico. Canada and Mexico turned around and tried to be able to export to the United States so that they could build surplus capacity, specialize in certain vehicles, and have the benefits of economies of scale that were not available to them domestically. It was in this context uh, and you know, particularly after the 1960s and 1970s, had seen us go through expropriation in the oil sector, in, in Mexico, particularly not just oil, but also in electricity nationalizations. We saw Canada also in the energy sector looking at forced divestment in oil and the National Energy Program in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s. The U.S. was interested in bringing that activity under a new kind of discipline. And so it sought in the North American Free Trade Agreement to create investor rules that would provide a level playing field and would give American firms some recourse. 
And this was partly because the relationship between the United States and its two neighbors had become so integrated by the time we were in the Reagan administration in the early 80s that it was difficult for the U.S. to retaliate against Canada or Mexico without hurting U.S. interests in some fashion. So the old trade dispute anti-dumping countervail was much harder to use in that environment. And so the, the negotiators of NAFTA, and before that the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement, sought to create an environment where investors could bring their own disputes forward. They could have their own arguments with governments. They'd have some rights, a system for resolving those disputes that wouldn't drag Washington, D.C. Uh, and the whole U.S. foreign policy towards Canada and Mexico in at every, every turn. That process um, resulted in the Investor State uh, Dispute Settlement Clause of the NAFTA, which we know as Chapter 11. And when Chapter 11 was um, publicized, there were immediate criticisms. And part of that was that when the part of the reason for that was that when the United States negotiated the North American Free Trade Agreement, it did so in the shadow of the European Integration Project. And in Europe, the U.S. saw much as we, we saw, we, we heard um, earlier, a bit of a status model, but also the delegation of sovereignty to new, less accountable European bodies, European Commission, and so forth, that were going to be regulators. In North America, there was a conscious decision to avoid doing that and have sovereignty reside with Canada, the U.S., and Mexico still, and not delegate sovereignty to a new body. And because of that, the criticism of Chapter 11 and the reason that NAFTA's Chapter 11 became so controversial um, really went to the heart of that model. If we were going to maintain the sovereignty of the United States, Canada, and Mexico separate, we weren't delegating authority to any new body, we had to make sure that domestic laws were respected. And so within the NAFTA, you see dispute settlement that really focuses on have the governments treated foreign interests consistent with the law? Have they calculated dumping margins properly? Have they count, calculated countervailing duty properly? Are they, char are they using the right formula for determining a subsidy? Is everything consistent? It doesn't provide any new rights, but it makes sure that foreign investors, foreign companies operating in, in the United States have access to the same playing field that American firms do, and that the American officials are obeying the rules, as are Canadian, as are Mexican. That separate sovereignty model is very important. So when Chapter 11 suggested that there might well be a challenge to the way that the government behaves on investment, it raised the question that, of whether investment rules were providing privilege rights for foreign interests. Would we have the ability to regulate challenged by foreign interests and create a two-tier system? This was particularly, I think, um, an active debate because of, of something that, that people at Cato were talking about at the time, a theory of regulatory takings. The idea that by regulation, a foreign interest could have some property taken away from them or the future value of their investment taken away from them, and therefore, they would have a right to compensation. Just as if eminent domain had taken their factory to build a highway, the government, by deciding that it was going to regulate the environment differently or regulate public health differently could take away the anticipated market of a firm and that the result of this would be that the firm was owed compensation. And if the damages for that compensation were high enough, the fear was governments would be shy about regulating. They wouldn't want to have to pay out large amounts of money to foreign governments and so they would be 
careful not to regulate, even where it was in the public interest. Now, this fear was was widely publicized, and a bit like we talked about in the earlier panel, it was publicized in the absence of concrete evidence that it was happening. It was a hypothetical challenge that we might have weakened our sovereignty in such a way that we were vulnerable to these these changes. But as we saw in the operation of NAFTA Chapter 11, there there were no cases that led to massive damages or really no evidence that the governments were avoiding taking regulatory action. But that hypothetical charge, that fear that governments would have to prove that they were not going to be guilty before they took any action, that they were going to have to be accountable to the public, I think was an important part of the democratic debate about NAFTA. As we quote Thomas Jefferson, he says, you know, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, and maybe a certain amount of hysteria is the price of democracy, that we have to challenge what could be in order to make sure that it doesn't happen. But in practice, NAFTA didn't lead to Chapter 11 damages and a return to regulation, but it did lead to, or a retreat from regulation, but it did lead to something very important, a signal both to Canada and Mexico, and in particular to the private sector, that allowed the thickening of our supply chains and the interlinking of our supply chains across the continent. Greater specialization and an improvement not, in our, not only in our productivity, but our competitiveness, because the cost of land transportation was lower than, than the cost of transporting some things across oceans, we had a natural platform, and we could squeeze the cost of building cars, we could squeeze the cost of fueling our factories um, out of the system by using tight supply chains. And the tight supply chains required investment. They required a signal that the governments weren't going to interfere with investment, that expropriation would be off the table, that there'd be a level playing field for regulation so that North American firms would receive national treatment. Now, you can give that credit to NAFTA or you can give it to the guarantee that an investor state dispute settlement provided as part of the NAFTA package. But what we got out of it was a much more competitive continent. And I think we got much more competitive industries as a result. I want to pick up one thing from the earlier panel that points, though, to where I think investor state dispute settlement has not worked as well. NAFTA challenges are, are expensive like any of these challenges can be. And one of the great things about NAFTA and Canada's free trade for uh, the continent and for our economy was that they opened up liberalization to small and medium-sized enterprises. Those small and medium-sized enterprises could take advantage of lower tariff rates without having to go through special petitions. They did have the burden of rule of origin paperwork. But by and large, they had markets opened up to them that previously big companies like General Motors and Ford were able to negotiate special access for. This was an important step towards liberalization, and it opened up just at the right time in the 80s and 90s as our small and medium-sized enterprises were growing as a source of jobs, and we had a great deal of entrepreneurialism in that period. We opened up North American trade, and we saw firms that traded nowhere else in the world going to Canada, where it was relatively easy, no language barrier, uh, and then later into Mexico. That was a great gain. But over time, I think we've added to the burdens on small, medium-sized enterprises, particularly in the area of border security, uh, which it provides a kind of barrier to market access for a lot of firms who have to secure their supply chains and take other steps in order to be able to participate uh, in cross-border transactions. Investor state dispute settlement has also been something that has really been available more to the large firms than the small firms simply because of the cost and the difficulty of the procedure and, of course, the need for a clever Washington lawyer half the time to get you through the process. So I think that there's more that we can do to make investor state dispute settlement uh, 
work better, to realize a bit further what we tried to set out to do with NAFTA, but the key will be to make the process simpler, easier to access, and more available to small and medium-sized businesses. Um, our chairman gave us uh, the mission in our, in our title, the title that does matter, which is the title for the panel, which is, does investor state dispute settlement protect or subsidize? And I would argue that it really doesn't do either, but it sends this important signal to foreign direct investment that allows for thicker supply chains. That is a very good thing for our competitiveness and our productivity. And it raises the question she left us with before she, she gave me the rostrum, which is what does it mean for something like the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership or even the TPP? Everything I've argued here is that within a tightly integrating and rapidly integrating region like North America, investor state dispute settlement is an important signal uh, to industries that you can tighten your supply chains without fear that your investments will be, will be challenged or interfered with by the state. But where you have less integration across the Atlantic or across the Pacific, investor state dispute settlement is going to play an important signaling function as well. And I think the challenge will be to design mechanisms for transatlantic and transpacific that respond to the specific concerns we have about European and Asian protectionism. Uh, just as the, what we did in North America responded to a specific legacy of Canadian and Mexican protectionism that came with the earlier area, era of industrial production. Thanks very much. And we'll now hear from Lori Wallach, who has been the director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch since 1995 and is a prominent critic of NAFTA and other trade agreements and... Her presentation is the perverse incentives of the investor state dispute settlement. Well, I'm very excited to be here and to have this kind of a debate about the investor state regime. Um, the basic narrative that's been used to promote the investor privileges regime and investor state has been two parts. These agreements simply put out basic property rights and protections and the signatories to these kind of agreements just are guaranteeing foreign investors compensation if they get expropriated and that they're going to be treated in a non-discriminatory way. And then the second part is the grand bargain, which is developing countries mainly sign up to certain rules and then in exchange they're supposed to get the FDI that makes it possible for them to develop. Those are the two basic premises of how it's been sold. But in reality, what's the story? First of all, and I have to, I was taking notes on Kim on what you said, because we've done a recent literature search on the different studies on correlations. And there are a bunch of studies that show no correlation. And then there's studies that show weak or unclear correlations, including the World Bank, you know, the big World Bank survey, um, which sort of begs the question of specific countries. So those are all across countries. And as Kim said, there are all kinds of methodological problems of how you control for other factors. So another way to look at it is some of the countries that have been real rock stars of, of attracting FDI, like Brazil, the number one recipient in our hemisphere and fourth worldwide, and they haven't a single investor state enforceable investment agreement. Their Congress has simply seen it not to be in the public interest. Um, we heard a little bit in the first panel about South Africa, and South Africa is, is leaving its bits as they come up. 
And um, they basically did a multi-year, multi-stakeholder study, including a lot of actual data collection to see if they could find a correlation between the countries with which that country had bits and inflows in FDI. They're the leading FDI recipients in Africa. And they found actually no correlation <laughs> at all, um, which led them to wonder what the upside is. And then the, the reality as far as the actual rules, and of course, in the body of 3,000 international investment agreements, BITS, FTAs, and others, um, there's a real variety, depending on what generation of agreements. But certainly in the modern set of BITS and FTAs with investment chapters, the substantive protections extend beyond some of the countries with the most robust property rights substantive rights. And specifically, the sort of myth that what the promise is is just non-discrimination and compensation for actual takings, which seems totally legit, um, is not actually what are the rules. And so for many countries, developing countries, who were sold that, both at UNCTAD and in other organizations, and to some degree signed up for that golden bargain, they have then found out, particularly in the growing body of jurisprudence relating to the surge in litigation, that, for instance, this minimum standard of treatment, fair and equitable treatment obligation they have is extremely elastic and is being interpreted by some tribunals to mean things like failure to maintain a stable regulatory environment, i.e. you change your law after the investment has been established. And we, we, do, we did a study across all the USFTM bit decided cases, we found that 81% of the cases, if the minimum standard treatment FET claim is raised, that's what the award is on. So in the in, in um, that has been the most successful claim, I will put it that way, using successful with air quotes around it. Um, then there is the whole business of compensation for indirect takings, which goes beyond what a lot of, some of these cases have gone beyond what most states' property rights laws would contemplate. There's pre-establishment national treatment. Now, this is in the US agreements. It's not in the EU ones. Um, this is basically a right to invest with very limited review, a really quite extraordinary right, particularly even in the context of things like real property, but certainly in different sensitive service sectors, et cetera. The ban on performance requirements. And you know, the most recent interesting case of that one is the, is the Mobile Exxon case, which was Canadian performance requirements that were applied on all investors in the oil and gas sector. You owned an exploration license. You had to put money into a research pot, domestic and foreign. Um, but the foreign firms got are going to get compensated. The award hasn't been decided, but the merits have. And then the ban on capital controls and capital transfer and capital transfers. And basically, you know, while a domestic firm in a country can be told, here are the rules for ensuring we don't have a financial crisis, the foreign investor has free flow. This in contrast to even where the IMF has moved post-global financial crisis, thinking that some capital controls, particularly on inflows, are a smart macroprudential move. Add to that the expansive scope of covered investments, which is in these agreements defined more broadly than typically the real property or a very specific interest in property that are the protected rights in domestic property laws. And so you have a definition of investor that doesn't really necessarily require putting a lot of money or capital down. 
you have a, a definition of investor that leaves a lot of wiggle room for how much actual business activity of a multinational firm occurs in a particular country to get different status under these agreements. And you also have a lot of instruments and forms of really, if you will, exposure to liability that wouldn't pertain under domestic law. So this has led to a growing view in a lot of developing countries that the benefits of investor state are not great and the costs are high. And I can send these slides around or they can be posted here at Cato, but I, I quoted a chunk of the South African study, because if you haven't read that, that's a really interesting study, the long two-year inter-party study, because they had foreign investors, domestic companies, big ones, little ones, civil society, labor, and it went on for two years of public hearings, and then they had all of these commission studies, including a bunch of econometric studies, looking at clearly, like, was there a relationship? There were downsides and costs to doing this. They were getting challenged. But on the other hand, were there enough upsides that it made the net balance? And it's a really, it's, there's a very interesting investigation of it in the context of a country um, that is a major attractor of foreign investment. And their bottom line was there was no correlation. They were having more and more costs. And um, in fact, the, the, the arbitrariness of the decisions and the lack of a system of unified appeals and precedent was making what they thought was a level of uncertainty and risk that they were worried was going to bring down some of their risk ratings. So the broader set of costs, though, go beyond just for the developing countries. And this gets to some of the issues that we've, caught, that we've discussed and this, you know, when you're balancing the costs and benefits. In this recent decade of flurry of cases, the kinds of policies getting challenged are enormously broad. So I am for compensation for expropriation. The government takes your factory and nationalizes it. You need a place to get your money back. That's a legitimate reason for an international investment agreement. And particularly if you're going to a place where the courts don't work, you can do that by contract and between the government and the investor and decide what country's courts or what tribunal you're going to take it to for the particular investment. I have no issue with that. The problem is all of these issues relating to regulation that have been the basis of the recent challenges. So the Egyptian case, the, the challenge on the increase in the minimum wage after the revolution, the tobacco and toxics policy regulation cases, um, a lot of environmental laws that would not be contemplated as um, discriminatory, the financial crisis response measures, a variety of reversals of privatizations where the domestic investors and the foreign investors have all taken basically um, a cut, a loss, because of the ways bad privatizations were done. And in each of these cases, sometimes you'll see a real expropriation and some piece of compensation should happen. But the awards are actually going way beyond where there's actual expropriation. Forestry, water policies, denials of regulatory permits, they're increasing cases like that. You have an expectation that you're going to get a permit, and that becomes an investor right. So basically, the system has elevated foreign investors, individual ones, not even as a class, to effectively the same status of a nation state to the extent that they have this new mechanism that can impose delays, uncertainties, just by filing a case. And probably you know, the, the, the most clear chilling cases are Pacific Rim, where you know, ultimately the investor state case, as compared to the domestic investment law case, doesn't go forward. But the law that would have actually implemented these mining policies has been chilled for six years. Or there's the Renko, the Renko case. But 
even when the state wins, and this gets to cost, wins as in doesn't face liability, they often have the tribunal costs. And everyone knows average cost tribunals, if you win, eight, $8 million. Everyone knows you have the Philippines Freyport case over what now, 60, 70 million dollars in just costs. And it's a state's rights issue too. We hear a lot of state AGs very upset about, US state AGs upset about the system because they end up, if the federal government lets them, getting involved in the defenses on the state laws, two California laws and attack under NAFTA. California spent about two million in the AG's office on each case, but they don't get the money back, even like in Glamis Gold, where the US got basically damages, costs paid by the company. And then just the sum, the lump sum, there's been $3 billion under US FTAs, so lots of it's NAFTA and bits paid out in taxpayer money through investor state, 15 billion pending. And all of that is um, in our, actually it's been updated in May. At that website, we have, a case, we have a list of all the US cases. I just wanna throw out this counterintuitive fact because it, I don't know how, we can't control. At, at this point in the costs area, I wanna just throw out this reality, which is since we've, been starting to do these kind of agreements, we have seen under our FTAs that our export growth is 30% slower with the countries we have FTAs with than the countries we don't. Now, one hypothetical I've heard some policymakers make is, we now are basically subsidizing the export of investment, so you don't have to export the goods, you invest the money and have it made in the cheaper place, so countries we used to send stuff to, we send investment to. I'm not necessarily making that connection because I think it's hard to control for the other factors, Interesting fact. So this gets to the point, which is subsidizing foreign direct investment, I would say yes. And the reason basically is you reduce the risk premium for the investor. So you're removing things like the uncertainty of the domestic courts. You are trying to ensure against policy changes, i.e. <clears throat> perhaps democracy, <laughs> new scientific evidence, new crises. Um, the problem that really is the regulatory environment cases is things like you have Germany, a democracy, decide after Fukushima they don't want nuclear power anymore. And so they're gonna phase it out over X number of years. And the domestic firms, which are most of their energy sector who have nuclear power plants, are gonna to have to make a plan and hopefully they had insurance and they had a good business plan and over X number of years they better figure out how they're gonna serve that market without nukes. But Vattenfall, a Swedish company, has ISDS rights under the energy treaty and is probably gonna collect some money. They've already gotten a first many million dollar settlement, there's a debate about how many millions, over Germany's laws of general application on improving coal smokestack scrubbers. And the, the, basically the government assumes these costs in the sense they're compensating the investor and then the investor gets the benefits. And you know, as I have often said to companies who say, well, I wouldn't go to that country without investor state. And I say, well, you know something? You can make a huge profit because it's really cheap labor. Buy some damn investment insurance if you're so worried. Why should the taxpayers and either of the countries involved basically subsidize your risky investment? The growing reaction and concerns, I just am summarizing it here because I'm running out of time, not just South Africa, but Indonesia's given notice of terminating its bits. Brazil, of course, did the big review. They're never doing investor state, they say. The India review is underway. These are a lot of big developing countries, and that's not the whole list of them. There are a lot of smaller countries. <clears throat> Everyone saw the OECD and the UNCTAD reports in, in 2012 about the sort of crisis of legitimacy and the Australian productivity report. Now, Germany has said no investor state in TTIP, which then throws the balance in investor state. I have only two more slides. 
And why would Germany say that? Perhaps because they looked at the new liability that would be posed were they to have investor state. And this, is, this goes to the question that was posed about the cost for the US. That was one of our specific questions. And the thing to keep in mind is a US policy issue, and this is why I suspect the conservative um, budget austerity voting members of Congress are getting, the Republicans are getting more upset about the idea of investor state is most of our past investor state agreements, it's been with countries that are not major capital net, net capital exporters or capital exporters at all. I mean, if you think about it, really Canada and Korea are it. Korea, we haven't seen any cases either way. And Canada, that's the only investor state cases where the US is actually being sued. So if you look in this chart, we bought the database of who's cross-invested where, there'd be over 24,000 new European-based companies we took out the 1%, less than 1% of investment are the existing bits. We have bits with some of the Eastern European countries. So we controlled that out. 24,000 new companies would have standing because there's a lot of outward investment in Europe. And that also begs the question of what would the investor state system need to be for, given we already have a lot of US-EU cross-investment without those rules. And just for folks who wonder about TPP, same deal. We've got some countries like Japan who have major cross-investment. So if you look at basically the new liability we would get that doesn't exist, as well if Australia were to accept investor state, there's a lot of potential liability on the treasuries, which gets to the very last point, which is the effect of ISDS and the US trade politics. And that is simply that um, whatever one thinks of the other parts of the trade agreements, the investor state system and the investor privileges regime is becoming like a cancer on the body of the rest of the agreements. And you have gotten now bipartisan cross-constituency opposition building for rule of law reasons, for it's not necessary reasons, for we don't want to expose our treasury to that reasons, to sovereignty reasons. From the left side of the spectrum, it's seen as an attack on regulatory policy space that's essential for the environment, health, et cetera. From the right, it's seen as liability. And from a whole new set of constituencies, from Tea Party groups to tobacco control to trial lawyers, it's seen as suddenly their business. So I would simply note that if you um, have a love of the underlying trade agreements, having this toxic asset on the books may not be the best way for them to go forward. Thanks. Thanks, Lori. All right, so we're going to turn now to Sean Donnelly. He is the Vice President for Investment and Financial Services at the U.S. Council for International Business, and prior to that, a career diplomat with 30 years at the Department of State and a brief stint as, uh, at U.S. Trade Representative's Office. So, Sean. Great. Thank you, and thanks to Dan and Cato and you, Kim, for inviting us here today. Um, I, I work at the USCIB. Um, let's see if I can make this work. There we go. Yeah. Good. <clears throat> Thanks. Um, my approach, I'm, I'm not an economist. I'm not a lawyer. I just want to give you a sense of what we hear from our member companies. We, we're an organization representing U.S. businesses and associations. We uh, are a very strong pro-open market, pro-investment, pro-competition, despite what you heard from Simon this morning that uh, somehow American business was looking for more protection, not less. That's certainly not what we hear from our, uh, from our members. We are strong supporters of open trade and investment. One of the things that's unique about us at USCIB, we represent the U.S. business community 
in the International Chamber of Commerce in, based in Paris, in the IOE, which is the employer part uh, of the International Labor Organization, and at the OECD through their Business and Industry Advisory Council, and more broadly, uh, sort of through the UN system. Um, I just wanted to, to sort of start at the start, which for me is investment. And, and we have a strong view, our member companies do, that investment is good. We think investment, inward investment, outward investment is good for the US economy. Not everyone shares that opinion, uh, but, but we think that's uh, important. We think it brings technology, it brings competition, consumers benefit when more investment goes on. Um, we, the investment world is changing a lot. There are a lot more players now. As, as was said earlier, investment in the old days used to be the North investing in the South. Now we've got China investing here, uh, other countries, uh, investments being done in different ways. Business is done through global value chains, more than an old traditional uh, sort of uh, basis. So it's, it's, it's a new world. The investment for us is, is really how economic engagement gets to the more uh, intense level. It is uh, our view of investment, and, and again, I suspect not everyone would agree. Many people see outward investment when our companies go abroad, uh, but that somehow is outsourcing. Uh, the, the reality is that at least 95% of U.S. investment abroad is not to serve the U.S. market. They're not going abroad seeking cheaper labor to ship things back to the U.S. The basic function of investment, and you need to be able to invest in today's global value chain way of doing business, is this how you, is how you reach foreign markets, how you access uh, vital raw materials, and so on. It's, it's, uh, it's a different... Uh, it's a different day. Um, as, as Kim noted, uh, our sense, I, I don't pretend to be an economist, I'll let Dan really comment on that, but our sense of the studies is that most show a, a positive link between bilateral investment treaties or investment protections or ISDS provisions and uh, growth in foreign investment. I would argue that investment is fundamentally different from trade in at least a couple of ways. When, when I'm trading with you, I'm shipping something to you. I, you may pay me in advance a letter of credit. When I'm investing, I'm putting a lot of my assets, my capital, my intellectual property, my, my very being at risk, and I'm doing it outside of my own jurisdiction. When I'm exporting, I'm sitting here at home covered by US law. When I invest, I'm coming under the the legal regime of, of the partner country. So I think investment does, uh, does merit special uh, provisions. And I would argue that our arbitration, investor state dispute settlement is appropriate um, for that purpose. Um, just think of a little bit, I mean, there's a lot of questions. Should we have investor state dispute settlement in general? Should we have it in the TTIP? If you didn't have investor state dispute settlement, I hope nobody thinks that means you wouldn't have investment disputes. I worked a long time at the State Department. I was a commercial officer overseas at embassies trying to help American companies. I was an ambassador. Um, and I can tell you, the, if we did not have investor state dispute settlement, if the only way you solved it was through state to state thing, if the US government had to espouse an investment claim and all of a sudden our invest, our the U.S. ambassador in Sri Lanka is going to be spending all of their time, and actually I did spend too much of my time, trying to, to arbitrate 
uh, with actually, believe it or not, the president of the country, small investment disputes. Um, the, the merit of investor state dispute settlement for the practitioners is you can get it decided in a non-political basis. You get it in a channel where experts, arbitrators um, can look at the case and make a decision uh, based on the merits. You may or may not like the outcome, but if, if you instead you were trying to have the Secretary of State decide whether do we espouse this investment problem in Indonesia, and therefore every time I meet with the Foreign Minister of Indonesia, instead of talking about you know, combating Chinese expansionism in Asia, we're going to have to talk about an investment dispute. I don't think that's really the way we should be doing it. There was a reason people invented investor state dispute settlement. And of course, it was not an American investment. This started in Europe in the late 50s, whether it was the German-Pakistan bid or others. Um, the fact is, almost all the 3,000-plus uh, investment agreements or investment chapters in free trade agreements these days have strong ISDS provisions in them. That says something to me that sovereign nations, be they developed or developing, capital exporting, capital importing, have made a decision that they find these things useful. And they have decided to enter that um, agreement. It, 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 uh, that, that just seems to me why this has happened. Um, let me see, what do we have next here? Just. Some of this has been raised before. This is what a typical US uh, bilateral investment treaty provides. Uh, I might describe them a little different than Laurie has, but I think it's a, it's a basic list, national treatment, MFN, minimum standard of treatment, ability to transfer your funds. Many of these things are what are embedded in US law for US companies' uh, processes. Um, the arbitration process is uh, the final one, but that's what makes the whole thing work. If you didn't have that, you're back to this problem of trying to have ambassadors and foreign ministers settle investment disputes. Um, uh, now, you can use the local court system. That works fine uh, in some countries. There are a lot of countries where court cases can easily run 10 to 12 to 15 years, particularly, frankly, if it's a foreign company engaged against a host government. Uh, I don't like those odds, and most of our member companies uh, tell us um, that they don't. So I think what we hear from our member companies is that this does affect their decisions on where to invest. Do some invest in Brazil without a bilateral investment treaty? Of course. Do some invest in China? These are major markets, and, and companies make their calculations. They would, frankly, I think, be foolish to decide, I'm not going to invest in China or Brazil. But they make a risk calculation, um, and I think for a lot of developing countries, a lot of other countries, um, whether there is or is not a strong uh, investment agreement, an ISDS case, uh, ISDS uh, chapter, uh, is a very important decision. Um, I've got the uh, my figures at the end. I think these are very similar. 43% of the cases that have been decided by the end of 2013, 43% in favor of a state, 31 uh, the investor, 26%, settled on some kind of a negotiation. And Professor Susan Frank at uh, Washington and Lee has done a lot of study in this area. And I think her figure is the average award is 3% of the award of the figure of its claim when a company files it. So I think the, the implication that these are always is just a windfall where companies can extract huge payments from, from poor developing countries isn't really, in my opinion, um, borne out by the facts. Um, let me see. 
Well, no, I think that's done. Let's spend most of our time uh, either from, with Dan or uh, taking questions. That's, that's our basic perspective. Thanks. Thank you, Sean. We'll turn now to Dan Eikenson, who is the head of trade policy studies here at, at Cato. And I'm curious to see whether he agrees with Simon. He's written a book with a great title, Anti-Dumping Exposed the Devilish Details of Unfair Trade Law. So are you a Simon that ISDS isn't that bad, or is it that bad? Anti-dumping or ISDS? Is ISDS as bad as anti-dumping? No. 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 We've got to get, we've got to get rid of the anti-dumping. <laughs> that is the well. devil incarnate, Dan. Okay. So you and Simon are agreed. Thank you for the introduction. You know, there's always a, some dangers to speaking last when there are 11 people giving their, their thoughts. The danger that uh, there's going to be some repetition. Uh, I can assure there'll be no repetition uh, with respect to what Sean just said, uh, but there'll be some repetition uh, for the point of emphasis with some things that were said, said earlier. The other danger of speaking last so close to lunch is that people are hungry. And I know that you all are looking at me, your eyes are on me right now, but your thought clouds are look like they have a big pork chop in there, or a cheeseburger, or a tofu salad. Uh, as, with, as is the case with most policy debates, most of the focus in this debate has been on the first order effects of ISDS, the effects which really are immediately seen uh, and which are discernible. We debate life with and without ISDS on the MNCs that are involved, on the governments that may be trying to attract investment, but we tend not to focus on the secondary effects, on what is not seen. And it's important that we do that. There are lots of cascading effects from ISDS or potential cascading effects. ISDS may provide some assurances to MNCs, as Sean was suggesting. But at what cost? My approach has been to say the rule of law is good, but the rule of lawyers is bad. That free market capitalism is good. Uh, but that crony capitalism, where policymakers are picking winners and losers, is bad. Then I ask, does ISDS really advance the rule of law? And is ISDS really consistent uh, with free market capitalism? To both those questions, my answer is no. Uh, then I take the inquiry a little bit further uh, to evaluate the pros and cons, the benefits of costs, and, and, and to whom uh, of the likely consequences. So mine is ultimately an economic analysis with some political economy considerations uh, thrown in. I think my opposition to ISDS is consistent with my support for the rule of law, free market capitalism, the reality that there is this global competition for investment. It's really one of the hallmarks uh, of globalization. You know, in 1999, the United States accounted for 39% of the world's FDI stock. It was parked here in the United States. Uh, as of 2011, the United States now accounts for just 17%. That is attributable to two, two major factors. The rest of the world is coming online. That's a good thing. They've adopted the rule of law to some extent. Labor skills are improving. They've applied technology in ways that was not applied before. So there are options for investors now in other countries. The other, the other reason for the decline in the US share is bad policies, bad policies here that chase investment away. Um, if you look at the, um, the World Economic Report's Global Economic uh, Competitiveness Report, the Doing Business Report from the World Bank, uh, for the Freedom of the World uh, Studies, you see the US losing ground in a variety of factors that have to do with inve investment decisions. Rule of law, infrastructure, the tax environment, the regulatory environment, 
perceptions of crony capitalism, things like that. So we've established Select USA to kind of engage in this battle for, for, for investment. Uh, it's part of the Commerce Department. Uh, but I think Select USA and ISDS are working at cross purposes. Select USA is saying, come on, invest here in the United States. These are the benefits. This is, this is what we have to offer. Whereas ISDS underwrites investment abroad. It encourages uh, investment abroad. I think government has a commitment uh, to the rule of law. It does not have a commitment to ensuring the well-being of particular companies. Uh, why should the well-being of foreign invested companies, for example, uh, foreign invested companies abroad, be of greater priority than protecting uh, the well-being of US and foreign headquartered companies that are operating and creating value here in the United States? U.S. policy optimization should not, uh, in my opinion, be calibrated to the well-being of particular companies at all, particularly not co companies that have sort of fleeting allegiances uh, to the country. Uh, after all, it's very hard, as Simon alluded to earlier, uh, how do we define a U.S. company nowadays? To continue with the auto uh, uh, example, GM produces more cars in China than in the U.S. Ford has more manufacturing, man manufacturing and assembly plants in other countries than in the U.S. Chrysler is owned by Fiat, Chrysler's an Italian company. So policy should not be optimized for any specific companies. Policy should be geared to attracting investment in the, high val in the highest value added activities we possibly can here in the United States. And policy should be geared toward faring well in this global competition to attract investment. And that is achieved by having good, smart policies and a welcoming environment for investment here. So I have uh, eight reasons why we should purge uh, investor state from trade agreements and bids. Uh, the first is that ISDS is overkill. So the premise of ISDS seems to be that governments don't like foreign investment and that they, they need to be coaxed into permitting its entry and to treating foreign investors fairly, uh, and that without ISDS, these poor MNCs uh, would be preyed upon by ill-intentioned governments. Do governments expropriate foreign assets? Rarely. Simon had some numbers earlier. It's declined over the years. It's, it's, it's a pretty rare exception. Do government policies ever have the effect of reducing the value of foreign assets? Occasionally, yes. The reality, though, is that these governments are engaged in this global competition to attract investment. Uh, and invest because investment begets more value-added activity, profits, job creation. Asset expropriation or failure to mine uh, foreign investment in your country is not going to be rewarded with more investment. The incentives exist without ISDS. There's, the, there's already sufficient incentive to treat uh, foreign investors fairly. Now, does that guarantee that policies will never go astray? No. Or that foreign, policy, foreign investors will never see their assets decline in value? No. But investment is a risky proposition, and foreign investment is an even more risky proposition. But it doesn't necessitate the adoption, I think, of, of institutions to protect multinational corporations from the, the consequences of their business decisions. MNCs are among the most savvy uh, and successful companies in the world. They're, they're ca capable of evaluating risk, calculating expected returns. Uh, Sean alluded to some companies investing in Brazil, even though there's no ISDS uh, mechanism there. Yeah, companies evaluate risk, and they have different risk tolerances. So there's room for investment everywhere. Uh, they, companies can buy insurance. Companies can predicate investment in a, in a, in a foreign country 
on the host government's willingness to contractually engage in an ISDS type of mechanism. Uh, but I don't think it should be mandatory. It shouldn't be part of these agreements. Uh, multinational corporations want ISDS, but they really do not need it. That's why it's overkill. ISDS socializes the risk of foreign direct investment. So if the U.S. is a demandeur of ISDS in trade agreements uh, in particular, uh, governments that concede to it may be less willing to grant greater market access for particular products, for example. So in that case, ISDS is an externality borne by U.S. interests that aren't benefiting from the bearing of that cost. <clears throat> it's a socialized cost. Uh, moreover, ISDS subsidizes particular kinds of multinational corporations. Uh, what may, may be considered too risky for company A may not be too risky for company B. So by reducing the risk of investing abroad, ISDS is a subsidy for company A. And relatively speaking, it's a tax then on company B. That's what I mean by socialization of it. Uh, ISDS encourages discretionary outsourcing. Now, I've written about outsourcing. I, I, I know that our, our companies need to be able to compete, and I don't really have a problem with outsourcing per se. Um, <clears throat> but I make the distinction between discretionary outsourcing and non-discretionary outsourcing. So let me define discretionary outsourcing by, by first describing or defining non-discretionary outsourcing. Non-discretionary outsourcing is the kind of foreign investment that is necessary to compete in a foreign market. There's no way to do it without it. <clears throat> if you're in services industries in particular, if you're in the accommodations uh, industries, if you're a hoteler uh, or you have restaurants, or if you're trying to invest to get a better idea of how the market works and to get a better understanding and a feel for the market, you, you need to have a presence there. Sometimes you need to invest because a particular locale has, has the right skills for this, this part of your supply chain or ac better access to the right raw materials. So. Those reasons, I think, uh, are, are, are understandable. It's the kind of foreign direct investment that makes sense regardless uh, of the US policy environment and is unlikely that the United States could provide a competitive en environment uh, for, for that activity here in the United States. So discretionary outsourcing, therefore, is, is what I would call investment that goes abroad but doesn't really have to. It's investment in activities that could be performed competitively here in the United States, but is chased away by policies that make US investment uh, relatively more expensive. So ISDS may benefit U.S. companies investing abroad, <clears throat> but it neutralizes what was once a big U.S. advantage, a big U.S. advantage in the global competition to attract investment, because respect for property rights and the rule of law have been relative U.S. strengths. One of the reasons to invest here, ISDS essentially exports those strengths and thus mitigates those U.S. advantages uh, as we compete for investment. It could be the deciding factor in a company deciding to set up an R&D facility in Malaysia uh, instead of California. So like I said, I'm not opposed to companies outsourcing. It's necessary for competing successfully in the economy. But while we shouldn't, den so we shouldn't denigrate it, we shouldn't punish it, uh, we shouldn't tax foreign outsourcing, but neither should we subsidize it. Uh, and from my perspective, ISDS subsidizes uh, discretionary outsourcing. Um, <clears throat> exceeds national treatment obligations. We talked about this a little bit. You know, an important pillar in trade agreements is the concept of national treatment, which says that imports and foreign companies will be afforded treatment no different from that those afforded to domestic products and companies. So the principle is a commitment to non-discrimination, a core idea. Uh, but, but ISDS turns national treatment on its head. Um, 
it gives privileges to foreign companies that domestic companies just don't have. So if a, a U.S. natural gas company uh, believes that the value of its assets has suffered on account of a change in policy that, say, subsidizes U.S. solar production, solar panel producers or something, uh, judicial recourse is available in the U.S. court system only, though. But for a foreign headquartered gas company operating in the United States, ISDS provides an, ad an additional adjudicatory option. So this inequality of treatment seems to run afoul of the investment provisions in the most recent fast track uh, legislation, the, the Baucus Hatch camp legislation, which is sort of in park right now. Uh, but but that, that legislation says, uh, with respect to foreign investment, the, the objectives are to reduce or eliminate artificial or trade distorting barriers to foreign investment while ensuring <clears throat> that foreign investors in the United States are not accorded greater substantive rights with respect to investment protections than U.S. investors in the United <clears throat> States. I think foreign investors having recourse to the U.S. legal system first, and then if that produces unsatisfactory results to third-party ISDS procedures, arguably constitutes uh, greater substantive rights for foreign uh, investors than for domestic ones. The fifth point, uh, U.S. Law, laws and regulations will be exposed to ISDS challenges. Lori alluded to it at the end of her remarks. We are giving standing to 24,000 new companies in the TTIP um, if, if, if that is to, to happen. Look, the number of cases is on the rise. We've been talking a little bit about that. Most claims over the years have been brought against developing countries, Venezuela, Ecuador, Argentina. Uh, but the United States is the eighth largest target right now. Uh, it's been the subject of 15 uh, claims over the years. No judgments have been rendered, as far as I know, against, against, against the United States yet. Uh, as the percentage of global Fortune 500 companies uh, that are domiciled outside of the United States continues to increase, I think U.S. laws and regulations are likely to come under greater scrutiny. Uh, so the specter of foreign companies prevailing in challenges of US, U.S. laws outside of the U.S. legal system would frustrate further, in my opinion, the task of, of selling trade to a skeptical public, to say the least, uh, and not to mention the firestorm it would cause. Uh, investor state dispute settlement raises concerns about domestic sovereignty. Uh, we've talked about the Philip Morris case in, in Australia, thank you, uh, and the case, the Swedish case in, in, in Germany. Imagine that happening here in the United States and what the reaction would be. Let me race through these. ISTS is ripe for exploitation by creative lawyers. I am not thinking about Ted or Todd uh, when, I, when I make this claim. But there's a lot of latitude for interpretation, I think, of what constitutes fair and equitable treatment. I know Ted suggested that uh, the outcomes have, don't, don't uh, support that hypothesis. But there are lots of venues out there, and there's a potential for uh, very different outcomes coming out of these, these, these uh, uh, various uh, arbitration panels. Um, among the complaints worldwide in 2012 were challenges related to revocations of licenses, breaches of investment contracts, irregularities in public tenders, changes to domestic regulatory frameworks, withdrawals of previously granted subsidies, direct expropriations of investments, tax measures, and others. Meanwhile, some agreements are attempting to expand the definition uh, of the breach of the obligation uh, in, the, in the CETA, there is uh, an effort, it looks like, to expand uh, the application of fair and equitable treatment to include targeted discrimination on manifestly wrongful grounds, such as gender, race, or religious belief. This attempt is to, to, to broaden the scope for complaints uh, should be a cause for concern. I mean, it just uh, expands the tent uh, and really cedes the rule of law. The rule of law ends up ceding to the rule of lawyers. Uh, 
Last two real quick. ISDS reinforces the myth that trade primarily benefits large corporations. This is a myth that we've been tr trying to address for a long time. Trade benefits smaller companies, it benefits consumers, it benefits taxpayers. It's the ultimate uh, ant trust buster. Uh, but we keep hearing rhetoric from some groups that, that only large corporations benefit from trade. I don't know who talks about it like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think ISDS uh, is one point in, the, the, in supporting that claim. Uh, and ISDS clearly benefits business investors abroad, doesn't really benefit anybody else, and it actually comes at the expense of others. So I think that's a, that's a point that has to be granted with respect to ISDS. Finally, dropping ISDS would improve U.S. trade negotiating objectives as well as prospects for uh, obtaining them. For practical, economic, legal, uh, and political reasons, I think ISDS subverts prospects for U.S. trade liberalization. But it's tangential, at, you know, at best, to the task of freeing trade. Uh, any benefits to availing multinational corporations to third-party arbitration uh, are all but totally overwhelmed by the additional costs. Such a deal would assuage thoughtful critics, I think, if we dropped it. Thoughtful critics of the trade agenda might drop their opposition. Uh, and it would expose those, uh, the bootleggers who are opposed to trade for a variety of other uh, misconceived reasons. So if you think the trade agenda, if you think of it as sort of the proverbial airplane that is down one engine and losing altitude, <laughs> throwing ISDS out of the cargo hold to reduce unnecessary weight is the best solution. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. I'm going to actually, for purposes of moderating, stand up here so I can see this side of the room and make sure I don't miss somebody. Um, and just let me, um, before opening it up, ask uh, uh, the panelists a question or a couple of questions. Uh, you know, one is um, for the, I guess for, um, for Chris and for Sean, uh, you know, Dan is kind of posing, and we heard it also this morning from, from Simon and others that, you know, and, and also from Lori, you know, if you want more trade agreements, this investor state could be deadly. And so, you know, for Sean and Chris, is this something that's so important that TTIP, for example, would not be acceptable without it? And then for, um, for Lori and Dan, um, I, frankly, I'm not convinced, given the, the, rea the backlash in Europe, that we're going to end up with a TTIP that has ISDS. But I think it's going to be there in lots of other trade agreements and bits that continue to go on in other contexts. So, you know, what would it take to fix it to make it at least somewhat acceptable and to address some of these costs? And I thought one of the interesting things that the EU has included as part of its um, consultation, um, one is trying to more clearly define um, uh, what's a frivolous lawsuit, and I think someone this morning mentioned that there are some mechanisms that I wasn't familiar with um, to, to try and, already to try and, and sort of have early tossing out of clearly, um, you know, unsubstantiated claims. But secondly, also to have the claimant bear the legal costs if the, if the claim is ultimately, uh, particularly if it's thrown out as frivolous, but perhaps even if it goes through um, and um, is ultimately ruled to be unjustified um, should the claimant bear the legal cost rather than um, uh, the government that may have been engaging in perfectly legitimate regulation. So I don't know, um, should we just um, sure. down maybe start with Chris and then? Sure. Um, I, th I think that uh, with regard to future trade agreements, 
it's important that we address investment, and it's important that we have a way of resolving disputes that come up, as, as Sean mentioned. Whether ISDS, as we have done it so far, is exactly the perfect model, I think we've heard some different suggestions on how to, how to address that that are either more updated or perhaps we could embed this in some sort of WTO context so that it's more generalizable, or the TRIPS model of sort of uh, having some guidelines that are then incorporated into domestic law. I think there are some options, but investment is has to be part of our dialogue. We're we're at a time in globalization where even in the United States, more and more of our prosperity is relying on cross-border transactions. And because we've adopted a model that retains national sovereignty and doesn't delegate sovereignty to another you know body, there's no North American Parliament, no global body. We have to think about how we govern those cross-border flows in the public interest as well as in the interest of you know, growth and prosperity. And some of that can be done collaboratively in treaty negotiations. Some of that will need to be on the side of some sort of dispute resolution mechanism court proceeding. And I think, so I guess what I would say is, do we have to dump it to have a TTIP? I don't think we, I think whether we do or don't, we have to talk about investment, and we have to talk about the role that that plays in facilitating the kind of integration we'd like to get out of a TTIP. Lori, I was trying to remember. I think it was your group that came up with the fix it or nix it. I can't remember if it was Doha Round or a different trade agreement, but <laughs> apply that to ISDS. Um, well, there is actually a 30-page document that we put out with the Sierra Club that's on our website, tradewatch.org, that does this in a much more useful and graceful manner than I can possibly do in the context of TPP. But the headings of each of the chapters would be summed up like um, the definition of covered investments needs to be narrowed in important ways to make it more consistent with domestic property laws, the definition of investor needs to clearly be made to be some entity that has made a real um, investment, a, a commitment of capital. The denial of benefits rules need to require substantial business operations in a way that isn't as openly defined as that term of art is right now. So that you're actually limiting who actually has the right to use the system to those who ought to be, and you're trying to stop the reincorporation games of domestic companies basically suing their own governments by setting up a shell. Then there needs to be you know, some of the basic principles of customary international law exhaustion of remedies, <laughs> for instance, which is a pretty big fluke of ISDS that you can go both paths simultaneously in a lot of the agreements, but exhaustion of domestic remedies so that ISDS is honest to God the last resort as compared to an interesting bargaining tactic along the way. You know, a lot of these cases are being filed. They never get past the initial filings because they're just used to scare the hell out of some developing country with the prospect of how much it's going to cost to defend it to basically lobby to get X permit or Y thing reversed. Um, there needs to be a different kind of early dismissal process. The process that you're mentioning, Kim, that was put in CAFTA and the USFTA since has not worked. I think the most vivid example is Pacific Rim, which went on forever and gazillions of hours of build hours of that tribunal. And ultimately, at the third set of hearings, after the initial dismissal hearing, tribunal went for the company. After the jurisdiction ruling, tribunal went for the company. At the merits ruling, they went back to the denial of benefits language, which was the basis of the early <laughs> dismissal, and said, oh yeah, by the way, after this many gazillions of hours and years, 
you actually don't qualify to do this case. So that, that does not cut it. Mm. Then there needs to be a structural change in the actual bodies and arbitration rules. There needs to be openness. So none of this uncertainty. We have no idea what the outcomes are, who's suing whom, nothing's public. There needs to be a rule where either you can be an arbitrator or you can be a litigant for a country or a state uh, for a country, defending a country or for a um, company, but you can't rotate. There need to be enforceable conflict of interest rules. There needs to be an appellate system. Anyway, I could go on. There's more. <laughs> the substantive rules need to be narrowed, obviously. Okay. Um, Sean? Well, thanks. My answer would be um, yes. Uh, strong ISDS, strong investment chapter is important in the TTIP as it would be in any other agreement. Uh, the reality, yes, the U.S. and Europe both have strong legal systems. Companies do for in in not always but they ought to have the right they are concerned sometimes about the perception of a home court advantage to be seen to be competing challenging in a high profile local court system um you know going against the host government also i think it's both the us and europe are trying to negotiate investment or in investment and trade agreements with China. Anyone who thinks you could get a high standard investment commitment with China if the U.S. and Europe opt out of, a, of a, such provisions in their own agreement is smoking something, um, in my view. So I think it is important. I think it will be in the TTIP. Uh, it'll be, uh, there may be some tweaking of it, but I think it, it needs to be there. Frivolous claims, I agree. There ought to be provisions. Uh, it needs to be carefully defined and in the negotiation what constitutes it uh, and so on. Similarly, um, you know, uh, the question of cost, I mean, that again, that could be negotiated. Does the loser always pay? Does the government pay if they lose? Do they pay the opposite things? I mean, that can be negotiated among uh, the parties. The idea that the companies can just be soaked with always paying for it is, I think, not, uh, not a way to go. Lori's idea on exhaustion, that you first have to go through all the way through the domestic court system before you would then have the last resort, is one, as I referred to, there are countries around the world where cases against the government, uh, host government, routinely run 10, 12, 15 years. So uh, that's, that's more of an exhaustion. That's just, that's just uh, cruel and unusual punishment. Um, and so I think I'm, I would be very skeptical of that. And similarly, just on the appellate system, I mean, this is not like the WTO. Each, each of these bits, they may be similar. They may have similar chapters, but they're all different. So, you know, you get a decision in a, you know, Burundi, Nigeria case. That's one set of laws. Then there's a U.S. Uh, Czech Republic one. Or so the idea that you have one set of WTO rules that you need to have similar things. This is very different. And if someone can tell me how this appellate system would work with the 3,000 different kinds of agreements. I, I, I haven't seen an explanation of how that, how that would work. I, I would just say that, you know, even without a bit, we still see a lot of U.S. investment in China. So, Absolutely. as you said, companies can measure uh, the risk and they know the risk tolerance. Some will invest, others won't. And as opportunities present themselves, if China demonstrates behavior that is worthy of reducing the risk assessment, then it'll attract more investment. So I don't, I don't think these investments are, are, are necessary. Uh, these, these agreements are necessary. I can't think of any modifications to ISDS that would sort of make those eight objections that I had go away. Uh, they still, it's, it's still sort of at loggerheads with a more important U.S. objective, which is to attract investment here. 
we need investment in value-added activity in the United States, and I think that this is a subsidy in the other direction. Also still, how would you design it to not give greater rights to foreign investors? I don't know that that, that works. Uh, so um, overall, I, th I think companies need to do more for themselves, look after their interests themselves a little bit better. And it's not only in this, this realm, but also in IP theft in general. Uh, yesterday we had news of the, the complaint, uh, the suit uh, against uh, certain Chinese members of the PLA for, for stealing uh, IP. How is it that $24 billion to $120 billion worth of U.S. assets have been stolen? I mean, don't the companies whose property has been stolen have some sort of responsibility to, uh, to safeguard their, their assets? So You think they haven't been trying? <laughs> I, 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 I imagine they're trying, but I, 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 how is it that this has been a trickle effect over the course of several years that 24 to $120 billion is stolen? You, you, got, you have to make things less accessible to the Internet, I think. It's, so anyway, it's, the broader message is that... Uh, let companies compete and decide what they want to do and, and engage in their own you know, risk assurance. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, we're going to open it up to you. We've got about 20 minutes for um, questions. I'll start right here. And please identify yourselves because I am having trouble seeing. So I think there's a mic coming down. And then there was one over on this side. We'll come over here. Uh, thank you, Raphael Shabanex. I'm with the Georgetown Institute for International Economic Law. Um, I would like to ask, especially regarding the modeling of costs for different alternatives for uh, resolving investment disputes. Mr. Donnelly uh, discussed how diplomatic espousal was a traditional route and how ISDS has largely sought to uh, remove the state uh, from, from that particular interaction. I just wanted to uh, question what would be the costs if we uh, put it in similar terms what we've seen as to... Uh, ISDS costs um, for diplomatic espousal, both in terms of encumbrance of the diplomatic process and especially trade negotiations, um, deterrence of uh, the kind of expropriations or discriminations uh, that, uh, that are the, the real ill, the real uh, you know, situation that ISDS tries to resolve. And uh, finally, whether or not um, uh, there isn't greater fairness in an ISDS system rather than, say, um, contractual arbitration, which is certainly something where the leverage you have as a multinational company is different from that that you have if you are a smaller or medium-sized company for which ISDS gives you uh, arbitration without privity, so to speak, and um, also the, the question of, of capture of, say, USTR or other uh, entities through which diplomatic espousal is certainly a route for the, the larger stakeholders in a domestic economy. All right, thank you. Sean, you want to start? Well, I'll start. Um, I think it's really hard to quantify it. I mean, I, I think there is a cost. I mean, you either have two options, it seems to me, if you don't have ISDS. You either have some kind of an investment agreement or, or trade agreement that would have state-to-state -state coverage like, like you do for the other chapters for investment, and that's where you get into the espousal. Similarly, if you have no investment agreement, agreement as say the US with Brazil right now you end up in the same place if a company ha but less formally if a company has a feels a, a US based company investing in Brazil or China feels they've been treated unfairly um, they have access to the local court system um, and and that's different in each country
But they are, I think, in most cases, also going to come to their home government, in this case the U.S., and ask them either to formally espouse the case and pursue it or to, you know, lean on, uh, call up the president of a country and make him, you know, do this kind of thing. Uh, and but the cost is, I mean, it's going to take government resources to pursue those kinds of cases. But it also, I would argue, has a political case. The U.S., government has a lot of high priority issues where we're trying to work with Brazil or China or something like this. And if you load on to that, uh, the idea that, that the ambassador, the, the secretary of state, the secretary of commerce are going to have to be in there pushing for that, that is a cost. I can't quantify it. And how do you uh, value it vis-a-vis -vis someone's calculation of some, some subsidy, however they come up with it? Um, you know, but I think there is a clear cost. And the idea that somehow if we, you know, well, you just get rid of ISDS and then these problems go away, that you don't have investment disputes, is just crazy. And, and I, you know, how, how do you resolve those things uh, if the local court system is at least delayed, difficult to get a judgment against the host government, et cetera? And, and that's why I think you, you do need this. And, and uh, I think those, those costs are substantial, but I can't, I can't find a way to quantify it. Well, I think that this gets to how investment is different than trade, right. which is I'm not sure it's for an individual company. It is the role of the U.S. government or any government to become the lawyer and the lobbyist for some particular company that made the investment decision to go to XYZ place because they thought that was going to be more profitable. If they made a bad decision, then they should have investment insurance. They should have made a contract or they should be more careful in making that decision. So actually, I'm not a big fan of the, of, of the notion of the sort of government espousal. I actually think you want to have some kind of a diplomatic screen and decide if there are a class of interests, like in trade. You know, XYZ countries are violating XYZ rules of a trade agreement, and as a result, a whole category called potential exporters of corn grown in the U.S., which we grow a lot of, is getting is not getting what we negotiated for, and there is an international terms of a trade contract vis-a-vis -vis two countries to fulfill. That I think is the appropriate enforcement role for a government. But to go become basically using our tax dollars for on behalf of one individual um, company. So I'm not a big fan of government-to-government -government enforcement on the investment rules beyond the obvious things like non-discrimination and actual takings. I think that the overarching scope of these rights and privileges that have been eventually developed in the investor state system for a specialized class of interests that are privileged is in itself problematic. And interestingly, though with different language, it gets to a, almost a libertarian notion of how the market ought to work and where the government's money should go. This one over here, is that Marty? No. You got a mic? Uh, Brian Beery, Washington correspondent for Europolitics newspaper. I think my question is more for Mr. Sands and um, Mr. Donnelly because they're in favor of, of uh, having ISDS. Within the context of the TTIP specifically, um, are you saying that there is no, that the um, court system in the EU and the US, the local court system, is insufficient to protect uh, foreign investors? Um, because if the answer is that it is sufficient, then why? what's the reason to have this in TTIP? 
you want to? Well, I, yeah, I, maybe the reference back to North America. I, Canada has a great legal system, and the U.S. has a great legal system, and so when we negotiated our free trade agreement, there wasn't a suspicion necessarily that, that the legal system couldn't handle um, disputes, except that we were really looking at where government lawfully discriminated, whether it was something like the National Energy Program pushing American divestment or Canadian attempts to protect Canadian culture, the parliament had passed the law, that was legitimate, but there was a dispute nonetheless because it was felt that some foreign companies were not receiving national treatment. It was the clash of two legitimate commitments that Canada had made that didn't quite jibe where a firm was concerned. So we thought we needed something else. And that was where chapter 11 came from. I think for Europe, it's not a disrespect for the capacity of the legal systems, but a recognition that sometimes you have clashing commitments that have to be resolved. And you can do that in a legal manner, or you can do that in an alternative dispute resolution system like ICSD, or yes, or Internet Investor State Dispute Resolution. It was just to create an extra layer of mediation for a problem. And I would imagine it'd be the same with Europe. Nice. Yeah. I certainly would agree. The court systems in, in the U.S. And, and in Europe are strong. Um, there can be, a, a, either for political reasons or otherwise, an awkwardness for a company deciding to be challenging a host government on, on a particular issue. Um, and, and the idea of having a, an alternative dispute resolution arbitration kind of thing is an option. In many cases, in looking, you know, fast forwarding, we've got to strong ISDS provision in the TTIP, it's done. I think a lot of companies will still decide to use the local court system. It might be faster, it might well be cheaper and so on. Uh, but I think there are some unique aspects about uh, being a foreign company in any country that, that, that merit them having this procedural uh, alternative. But whether they would choose to use it would be for a company to decide based on the case. And, and they may well not be, not be used. But I, I, I do wanna just make the point again, this, the TTIP is, is not just about the U.S. and Europe deciding what they're going to have bilaterally. It is the two big Western democracy industrial powers having an opportunity to set a template for not just investment, but for a lot of other important issues that may ultimately each of us expand into our other agreements. It may, may end up getting multilateralized in some way or something. So for us to decide that somehow investment in general or uh, any uh, arbitration procedures was too hard and didn't belong, really sets a very dangerous precedent in a globalized economy where we're each going to want to do agreements with, with other key markets. But I would still love, I'm, I would still love an answer to Kim's original question, which is, would you guys live with a TTIP without an investor state? Because while you say it's going to be in there, I think it's going to come down to the decision of TTIP without investor state or no TTIP. And I think that the liability of what the exposure would be and the extra rights to sack various domestic policies have really become an overwhelming argument. And to this question of, you know, with Canada, we, you know, we trust their courts, et cetera. All of these pre the flurry of cases agreements, the 3,000 cases Sean said, the 3,000 agreements with investor state, it must be okay, countries are signing up. Countries had no clue, a lot of countries, what the hell they could potentially getting into. And there is nothing like one stinky investor state ruling to transform an entire government's perspective, hell, even a challenge in Australia, to say, wait, we signed up for what? 
The jurisprudence lets this tribunal decide what? And that reality, I think, is what's caught up with the new growing global withdrawal of major developing countries from the system, of the critique in, in TTIP, where I think it's going to be a, you know, and I'd love to hear what you guys say, TTIP at, without investor state or no TTIP, because I don't think you're going to get countries signing up to that kind of liability because it's setting a good model for China to look at. The, the downside is just too big for the participants. Dan or Bob, do either one of you want to weigh in on this from the U.S. business community? You don't have to, but I'll give you the opportunity. No? <laughs> Can we get Mike over here for no? All right, that's fine. Any, any, anyone else want to weigh in on this or anything? There's, okay, over here. Did I? Hi, my, I'm Bob Stumberg from Georgetown Law. Chris, your comment reminds me of a comment I heard from a Chinese official at the WTO a few years ago. He said, uh, we often have times governing our provinces. They do things that we can't control. <clears throat> our attempt to do so might be unconstitutional. That's why we like trade agreements. That's why we like trade agreements. Well, absolutely. And that, that is another dimension of all this is that you have, you know, federalism in all in several countries. So you have multiple levels of government and you, you have an exposure to conflicting government policies, whether it's Quebec trying to protect something that like dairy egg marketing boards or a state owned energy company like Hydro Quebec versus what the federal government might want to do. So I, I guess I would say that I think in the absence of some sort of dispute resolution mechanism, which is judicial or quasi-judicial, we fall back on a very political decision-making process. And I know that one of the things we've had in our North American relations is the trouble that certain things are so political that it the President of the United States has to get involved in resolving the dispute, whether it's the Keystone Pipeline or, or, or something else. And it's it's a very inefficient way of dealing with it. Certain things will rise to the level that you can get the President on the phone to resolve the issue. But I remember, you know, Bill Clinton didn't really want to deal with the Pacific salmon dispute when that went wrong. Nobody really wanted to deal with softwood lumber Off at the presidential lumber. level. So, um, so sometimes you do need another level to be able to turn to to have them begin to solve this dispute. Maybe you need politicians at the end. But um, the more political the situation, the more informal, the better off you are if you're a big interest. If you're a small interest, though, if you're a small, medium-sized enterprise, the big politics won't be there for you, and you're going to be sacrificed, I think, on the altar of good relations, usually. Kim? Sure. May, may I ask a question of another panelist? Sure. <laughs> I, I haven't seen any other hands. Me, go ahead. And while oh. Why don't you go ahead, Dan, and then we'll get a mic over here okay. to, to Bob. And he, yeah. I have this very simplistic thesis that if we drop ISDS from the trade, trade agreements, that the opposition to it will splinter and that there'll be enough support. And I just was wondering whether Lori would weigh in on how this would change your perspective. If you got your wishes with respect to ISDS, would you and, and Global Trade Watch uh, find your way to supporting the positive, affirmative U.S. trade agenda again? It would go, in turn change Bob's answer. <laughs> it, would go, it would go a long way towards resolving our concerns, particularly with the U.S.-EU agreement. Um, the, there are a couple of other overarching concerns we have to see how they go, like will there be some mechanism for enforcement for the regulatory coherence body they want to set up that could also expose domestic regulatory policies that are non-discriminatory? This is our big issue. We don't have a problem with the rule of non-discrimination. 
our issue is when you set a ceiling on health, safety, environmental, other consumer protections, financial regulation, that is basically a subjective, here's as far as you can go. You don't get to make the decision as the people living with the results and or change it down the road. And so the objective, don't discriminate, is not our issue. The subjective, we're going to have regulatory coherence, and unless it's below this standard, it's not an allowed standard for food safety or whatever, that would still be problematic if enforceable. And we don't know enough because there's such different visions of what that regulatory coherence issue is going to be. But, you know, the, the traditional trade stuff, I mean, this is, you know, what I've said to Ambassador Froman repeatedly, if you just zeroed out the tariffs and chucked all this regulatory stuff, we would not be having this discussion. It's the governance issues. It's the stuff that's not the traditional trade issues that has brought the consumer, environmental, and other public interest groups into the debate. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, thank you. Um, well, uh, thanks for putting me on the spot. Of course, uh, it, it will be no surprise. <laughs> no surprise to, uh, to, to know that uh, I subscribe to the, uh, the views in general of my distinguished colleagues, Mr. Donnelly and Mr. Sands and, and Ted this morning. Um, I've learned a lot here, Dan. It's uh, been an extremely interesting conversation, yeah. definitely challenging uh, some ideas that I've had and um, facts that I've presumed or known. Um, but I think that um, um, I think we have to remind ourselves that the current U.S. model bit includes uh, very considerable refinements, work done over a period of, I think it took three years to resolve that, interagency involving a lot of stakeholders. Um, it uh, goes a long way to taking care of some of the problems that have been raised. Uh, I think it would be very helpful to generalize that model to other countries to, um, to try to uh, get it embraced by TPP and by TTIP. Um, I think at the end of the day, it advances the rule of law. Um, and I think the point is made, well made that that's the best argument for it. Uh, um, finally, I'm worried, um, based upon Ted's uh, comments this morning and upon a, a very quick review of the EU extensive paper on ISDS that has just been published, um, that the EU will try to, will use the CETA text as the basis for a negotiation with the United States on uh, on, the, on this on investment, and uh, that is um, not a good model. That is not a good model, and we are opening up ourselves to a, a very difficult negotiation uh, by trying to go at this negotiation on the basis of our model, to trying to and attempting to improve theirs. So I think I'm, I'm afraid that in the compromise we lose a lot. So I think we have uh, a big challenge ahead in, in, T, in TTIP to, uh, to, to negotiate, to come out with a good agreement, a good model, a good uh, investment chapter. And we should keep in mind that we have, I think, eight bits, am I right? Bits with eight European Commission member, European <coughs> Union members that are based upon an old model, I think a 1980s model, correct me if I'm wrong, and that that has good provisions and that we shouldn't be we shouldn't be too quick to abandon those in favor of a, 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 a less beneficial uh, outcome. Sorry for the length of that. 
All right, well, we're now at our, our witching hour. Uh, I think we got an awful lot of food for thought in, in this very rich discussion, both in the first panel and in the second panel. And now I guess we have some real food. Um, for those of you who want, are able to stay for lunch, thank you very all for coming, and please join me in thanking the panel. Thank you.